Okay, well, I told you today is Pentecost Sunday. <clears throat> um, it's not a made-up holiday. Uh, it is a, 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 a commemoration of a, a great event, a real day that happened in history. Uh, Fifty days after Christ rose from the dead, we had this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which you can read about in Acts chapter 2, when the church was born. And so this is a great day to start our new series where we're going to study the book of Acts. So we're going to be in Acts for a while. Um, it's, uh, it's in the New Testament. It's the first book that you find right after the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell basically the same story of the life of Jesus from different perspectives. And then Acts picks up that storyline, what happens after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's the birth of the church and the spread of the mission of God. Uh, so I don't remember who I was talking to last week. Someone asked me, what are you preaching next? And I told him I was preaching Acts. And Jen was there, and she said, uh, less than half-jokingly, um, you, you need to watch out when a pastor decides to preach Acts, because it means he wants to change something. Um, and it's true, so not just me. When, when somebody starts to preach the book of Acts, you better watch out, because you're going to change something. Um, I'm not sure what, but I just feel compelled to compare, again, like, what are we doing, and how does that match up with what the early church did? Okay? Like, are we doing what God really wants us to do? Are there things we need to change? Um, I was struck recently by an illustration that I heard from Francis Chan. He's a well-known speaker, author, pastor, had this megachurch. He started in his living room with just a few people and eventually grew to be about 5,000 people. And he got really dissatisfied with what he was experiencing at this church. And he started wondering, is this the church that God wants? Right? And so he shared this illustration that has been sticking with me um, ever since I heard it. He said, imagine you go to a restaurant. And when you go there, uh, you look at the menu, you decide what you want, you place your order, you say, I would like this steak. And you give the, the order in, you say, you want the steak. So a little while later, the waiter or waitress comes back with your order, and in front of you, they, they place a pile of spaghetti. This is good spaghetti. It looks really nice. It's, you know, well-done spaghetti, you know, if you like that sort of thing. But, but what do you do? Like, if you ordered steak, and they come out, and they bring you spaghetti. Maybe some of you are probably nice enough. You'd be like, well, okay, I guess I'll eat it, right? But what do you do? No, you, you say, no, that's not what I ordered. This might be great spaghetti. This might be really tasty, but it's not what I wanted. I asked for the steak, and you brought me spaghetti. And so what Chan pointed out, and I think is just so, so powerful. So what, what if we're doing that with God? Right? Like what, what if God said, hey, here's what I want the church to be. I want steak. And he lays out, here's, here's how it's supposed to be. But we've come up with our own uh, ideas of what the church should be like. And so instead of listening to what he ordered, we create this thing that we want, and then we bring it to God and say, I made you this amazing plate of spaghetti. And God said, that might be great, but that's not what I ordered. Okay? Now, now in case you're wondering, uh, God's not going to be like the, the overly nice patron who says, well, okay, it's not what I ordered, but I'll, I'll take it anyway. Because when you read throughout Scripture, time and again, 
you see him saying to his people, this is not what I ordered. So, for example, in Amos chapter 5, in Amos 5, verse 21, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But... Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you hear him say, I didn't want the spaghetti (laughs) there? He says, you're coming with all your your feasts. You're doing these religious things, burnt offerings, grain offerings. You're singing songs. You're making melody. He says, not what I wanted. I wanted justice. I wanted righteousness. In the New Testament, Jesus confronts the Pharisees with the same thing again and again. One example would be Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Again, they're holding to human traditions. Instead of doing what God wants, they've created these other things, these traditions that they're doing. Uh, and, and they're saying, now this is what God really wants. They made all this stuff. And they say, this is, this is for you, God. God says, not what I wanted. It's not what I ordered. And I really don't want that to happen for us. I don't want us to, to create uh, a form of church, to participate in a form of church that uh, is just what we want, but not what God wants. And it's easy to do that, right? You can look around, you can see, uh, well, let's find some quote-unquote successful churches. What are they doing? Let's do the things that they are doing because they are achieving success. Or we can just look at our own experience, uh, our traditions. What has our church always done? What have churches I've been a part of always done? Well, clearly that's what church is supposed to be, so let's do that. Uh, Or we could even just look at our hearts. What do I want? I don't like this, I like that, I want a church like this, not like that. Those are all ways that we can be creating this other meal for God. Saying, well, look at other people, look at what I want, look at what's going on elsewhere. And God says, no, but what about the Word? I told you what I want in the Word. I have placed my order in writing. Um, I've heard the steak. So that's why we're going to look at Acts for a while. Now, the whole New Testament is great for this. The New Testament is written to the church. The whole thing is good for us to see, like, what does God really want? But Acts is especially helpful because this is the book about the beginning, about the birth of the church. And so as we see the beginning of the whole thing, we we get to see, like, without all of the the 2,000 years of church history where we've added all sorts of stuff to it, when you get back to the beginning, to the foundation that God laid and says, this is what the church is about, it'll help us to see what he really wants and not what we've made it. So we're going to start with the book of Acts. I'm honestly not sure how, how we're going to go yet. I, I don't think it's going to be like other books where we're going to just look at every verse in order. It may be a little more thematic. 
Um, but today, we're going to look at the first 11 verses, um, and I think we're going to be here for maybe a couple weeks, just to see what God has for his church. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Right, so the first thing that I want to talk about today out of this passage um, actually comes from the context more than the actual verses. Um, and it's this idea that God has a mission. This is what we've got to understand, that God has a mission. So if you read the first few verses, you probably notice it has a bit of a weird start, maybe caught you by surprise. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, wait, what, first book? Okay, so this is a sequel. Acts is a sequel. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, if you've uh, gone to the library and, and found a book, and you, you check it out, and you're really excited to start reading it, and you open it up, and you have no idea who any of the characters are, or what's happening, because it's not the first book in a series. Uh, or maybe you've, you've tried to start watching a TV show, like third season in, and you're going, who are these people? What's happening? I don't know. Okay, that's kind of what's going on in Acts. Like, you can read, you know, Theophilus, what? Who's this? First book, What? All that Jesus began to do and teach, what did he do? Where's all that stuff? Okay. So Acts is a sequel. This is actually uh, a two-part. Uh, Luke is season one, okay, and Acts is season two. Right? Luke wrote both of these. He wrote Luke and Acts, and Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. Now you see, he says in verse one what Luke's all about. He says, it's, uh, uh, in the first book, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the Gospel of Luke, and you guys know this, the Gospel of Luke is about the life of Jesus about his ministry, about his teaching, about all that he did, and then his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. And so Acts is a sequel to that story. It assumes that you know that story. But it's also, in a very real sense, a sequel to the whole rest of the Bible that's come up to that point. And so to understand Acts, we really need to understand what is the storyline of the Bible that's been leading us to this moment. And the story of the Bible is simply that God has a mission. Okay, what, what is the Bible about? That's an interesting question. If someone asked you, what is the Bible about? Um, do you have an answer for that? That's a, that's a good question. There's probably a lot of different ways you could answer that. Maybe you want to think through that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe at work one day, you're, or on your lunch break, you're reading the Bible. It says, what is that about? 
Okay, here's one way to answer that. You could say the Bible is about God's mission to redeem all humanity through Jesus. Okay, that's one way to summarize it. The Bible is about God's mission to redeem all of humanity through Jesus. Because people tend to think of the Bible as, uh, if they think of it at all, as a collection of miscellaneous stories and rules, uh, things that you're just supposed to, to glean moral lessons from to teach us what right and wrong are. But the Bible is really a story. It's an epic story of God's mission to redeem the world through Jesus. So before I move on, I'm going to do something right here that I hope that you all can do. And if you can't do this yet, then you need to work on this. Maybe take some notes while I'm doing this part. What I want to do here is just summarize for you fairly quickly the major moments in the Bible uh, to, to, to highlight that this is God's mission to redeem humanity. Okay? So it begins in Genesis, of course, with the creation of all things. God made man and woman in his image in a perfect world for relationship with him but they disobey God. They, they did what they were not supposed to do, and in that sin, the relationship with God broke, death entered the world, and everything wrong that we know today is a result of that sin. But God did not give up on his creation. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you see a promise. In Genesis 3, 15, God, as he is cursing the devil who caused all this stuff, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it's not really clear at this moment what he's talking about, but this is a promise that there's a hope, that there's going to be one, a descendant of this woman who will defeat the devil, who brought all this evil into the world. As you keep reading through the storyline, you see God then calling this person named Abraham. In Genesis 12, Actually, his name at that time is still Abram. God changes it later. But in Genesis 12, God says to this man, Abram, uh, Now the Lord said to Abram, Genesis 12, 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God calls this guy Abram and later changes his name to Abraham. And he says, you're going to be the means of my blessing the world. In you, that is through his offspring, through the people that come from him, there's going to be blessing for the whole world. God's on a mission. So he chose Abraham. Abraham had descendants. The descendants became the nation of Israel. These are the people that God's going to use to bless the whole world. Now in Exodus 19, uh, God has delivered the people then out of slavery into Egypt. He's, he's creating this nation. He's about to give them some commands, the famous Ten Commandments. And he says to them in Exodus 19, For you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God says, I'm choosing you. You're going to be my people, but not just for yourself. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. That is, they, what, do king, what do priests do? They serve as intermediaries between God and man. So you're going to be my people. You're going to be people with a relationship with me. And then to the rest of the world, you're going to help them to know me. 
Because I have a mission to redeem the world. So God chooses Abraham. He chooses his people, uh, the nation of Israel, to take this good news to the nations. But they fail. So they need a king. And God gives them a king, a leader who will help them to accomplish their purpose, their mission. It's King David. And God made a special promise to David in 2 Samuel, verse, or 2 Samuel chapter 7, in verse 12. He says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So again, God says, I'm going to make a promise here. Send up a king, David, the king. But he says, not just for you, David, but a promise for your line, for your royal line to be established forever. You will have a king reigning on the throne, uh, uh, furthering my mission to, to show the world what it is to follow me. That's going to be yours forever. A descendant of David on the throne. God's on a mission. But the mission is going to take more than just political power. And so later in the Bible, you see this to find out what kind of king is this? What kind of ruler are we going to have? In Isaiah 53, we see it's a ruler who deals with sin. And I could read the whole thing, but I think you know it well. I'll just give you a few verses. Isaiah 53, speaking of this promised coming deliverer, the king. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, so here's the storyline of the Bible, right? There's creation uh, made perfect in relationship with God. Then there's the fall. We've sinned. We've lost that relationship with God. But God brings redemption, and he promises uh, Adam and Eve, you'll have a descendant who crushes the serpent. He promises Abraham, through your line, I will bring blessing to the whole world. He promises the nation of Israel, you guys are going to be kingdoms of priests, intermediaries, bringing people to God. He says to David, you're going to have a son reigning on the throne forever. And he says, there's going to be this servant who dies for the sins of other people and heals them. That's the Old Testament. That's the storyline of the Old Testament. And you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read four times the same story, how all these threads get brought together in one man, Jesus Christ. And he does it. He lives. He, he lives out the faithfulness that Israel is supposed to have. He's a blessing to the nations. He is loving people, drawing them to God, and then he dies like the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, offering his life for us. And he rises from the dead victorious, bringing the victory that God always promised. And so you get then to Acts. You say, okay, all that stuff's happened. All this amazing stuff has happened. And, and you may be inclined to think, I think like the disciples did, well, this must be the end of the story then. 
Right? God had this mission to redeem all of humanity, and so you follow it through the entire uh, Old Testament up to the Jesus, and you think, well, he just did it all. It's all done. The mission's accomplished. He's the king. He's the, the sacrifice. He's the descendant of Abraham. And so the disciples ask this question in Acts 1, 6, kind of betraying their sense of, well, I guess we're all done now. So, so when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. So they're saying, well, I guess, I guess it's done. Now all that's left is for this great reign of the king in, of, in David's line to, to establish his throne on earth and to drive out all evil. Like, that's all that's left, right? And Jesus says, no, it's not time for that yet. Verse 7, he said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he says, I'm going to return. Then he goes up, right? He, he ascends to heaven and the angels say he's going to come back. So there will be a time when he returns and finally and fully establishes his reign on the earth. But he says, not now. It's not mission accomplished yet. There's still something to do people need to hear. Says, Jesus has accomplished everything. The storyline of the Bible, in a sense, is complete, right? Because he's done the redemption. He's accomplished the work. But nobody knows about it. And so he says, no, I need you guys now. I'm going to start this new thing called the church, and I need you guys to go out and to tell everyone what has happened. Okay, so God has a mission and then, here's our second point today, God created the church to accomplish his mission. So that's what we're talking about in verse 8, when Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So he's looking forward to what's going to happen in chapter 2, what we celebrate today, Pentecost. It says the church is going to be born. You're going to get the Holy Spirit. And then what are you going to do? You're going to tell everybody. That's the next step in the mission of God. Jesus has accomplished everything. It's been fulfilled, and yet we need to tell people. So he says go to Jerusalem, which is the city where they are, so immediate neighbors. Then go to Judea, the close neighbors. Then go to Samaria, cross some cultural boundaries. And then go to the ends of the earth. Tell everybody about what has happened through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, this is the mission of God, and this is the mission of the church. This is the whole reason why the church exists. The church exists to bear witness to Jesus. That's, that's what he says in verse 8. He says, Here, here's why it's happening. You will receive power, and you will go out, and you'll be my witnesses. That's why he creates the church. It's to bear witness to Jesus. See, sometimes we think of the church as an end in itself, like this thing that just exists. And we've got to figure out, well, what are we supposed to do with it? But the church exists for a specific reason. Jesus created it to take the mission to the people. Okay, so it's kind of like, I was thinking about this uh, the last couple of days. I was doing some work in my yard. Okay? So I'm, I'm doing some lawn care. You're probably doing some lawn care too. It's that season of year. And I was using tools, right? Or I'm sure you do too. I wasn't going out there just like pulling grass stems off one by one. I was using tools. got a lawnmower, got a weed whacker, got a hedge trimmer. All right, so if you have tools like that, why do you have those tools? You don't have them just because you like to have them. 
maybe some of you are addicted to tools and you just do that, but, but, but generally, we get tools because we have a mission. There's a job to be done. You say, how do I accomplish that job? I get that tool and I use it for that mission. Right? I want a nice lawn, so I'm going to buy these things to help me accomplish my mission of having a good lawn. Okay, that, that's what the church is here. It's, it's, it's God saying, I've got a mission. I'm trying to redeem the whole world through Jesus. I've done everything up to this point of having Christ die and rise from the dead. Now we have to tell everybody. So I'm going to create the church. I'm going to empower them with the Spirit and send them out on this mission. That's why the church exists. That's really significant. I'm going to keep hitting this. and Maybe you think that's not a big deal. It's a big deal to think this way. It's a paradigm shift. We're used to thinking about mission, especially when you put an S on it, call it missions, like overseas stuff. We're used to thinking about that as a subset of what the church does. It's a line item among many other line items in our budget. It's a ministry among other ministries. It's something that we give money to other people to do, but not something that we do. But what I'm arguing today, what I'm seeing in Scripture based on the order of how things are laid out, is that this mission of telling people about Jesus is the most important thing the church is supposed to do. It is the very thing we are created to do. If we don't do that, then we're like a lawnmower that you bought and then just used to sit in your garage. Or like, a, like an edger that you just use to hang your laundry on. Right? That's not what it's for. It was created for a purpose. The church was created to accomplish the mission of God, which has been going on from the beginning of time until now. To go, to tell. The church was not created by God to be a place where people come and sit but to be a people who go and tell. There's a quote that I've seen in numerous places, so I don't know who to attribute it to, but this summarizes it very well. And this is what you have on your note-taking outline, because it's kind of convoluted, so you might want to fill in these blanks. It says, It is not the church of God that has a mission in the world, but the God of mission that has a church in the world. It's not the church of God that has a mission in the world, but the God of mission that has a church in the world. You get that? So the simpler way to say that is uh, God's church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. So the word order matters there. I I don't want to always use basketball illustrations, but this is what came to mind. Um, So there's the basketball team, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, they have um, a couple players on that team. LeBron James is one of them. Kevin Love would be another player on the Cavaliers. And there's two factually accurate ways to talk about the relationship. You could say that LeBron James is on Kevin Love's team. Uh, you could also say Kevin Love is on LeBron James' team. Now, if you, for this to work, you have to understand LeBron James is like the best player, whatever, in a long time. Um, and so clearly, he is the main deal on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Okay, so you could say that LeBron James is on Kevin Love's team. But that's not true. It's not Kevin Love's team. It's LeBron James' team. 
He's the main deal. He's the most important player. Everybody else is on his team. Now, it matters the way that you say things, the order in which you say things. And so, so we don't want to just say the church has a mission as if the main deal is the church, right? Like, like the church is the big thing, and then there's also this other mission that we have. No, no, no. The main deal is a mission. God has a mission. Long before God had a church, God had a mission. And God's been on this mission from the very beginning to redeem humanity through Jesus. And part of his process in accomplishing that mission, this plan that he's had for all eternity, was to create a group of people to fill them with the Spirit and to send them out to tell what Jesus had done. You see, without uh, LeBron James on their team, the Cleveland Cavaliers pretty much don't have a team. And without the mission, our church doesn't have a reason to exist. That's why Jesus trained disciples. That's why he filled them with the Spirit. It's why he sent them out. It's the mission. Mission is not optional. The church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. So when we think about what has God ordered, when, you know, back to that restaurant illustration, God orders the steak. What's the steak? Well, one pretty big part of that is being on mission. That, that God created a church that it, whose priority is Acts 1-8, to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and to tell people all that God has accomplished. And if a church is not doing that, it's not the steak. It's spaghetti. It might be a lot of really wonderful spaghetti, but it's spaghetti. It's not what God ordered. So what does that mean for us? Let's talk about some application. If God created the church, if I'm right about this, if he created the church for the purpose of accomplishing his mission, what does this mean? Well, one thing it means is that uh, my personal mission for the church is less important than God's mission. Your personal mission for the church is less important than God's mission. All of our private, individual missions, what we think the church should be doing, all is less important than God's mission, which is namely to take the good news to those who have not heard it. So we all have these missions, these private missions, these individual things that we think the church should do. A lot of them are good. A lot of them are good. But sometimes they can get in the way. So, for example, you might think that the mission of the church is to teach your kids right from wrong. A lot of people come back to church at that period of life when you start having kids. You think, well, I want my kids to grow up with uh, some morality. It was, I didn't like going to church when I was a kid, but I want to make my kids go through it too. (laughs) Right? So that's what the church is for. It's to teach kids right and wrong. And certainly that's a valuable thing. But that's not what the church was created for. That's why God gave kids parents. Or you might think the church's mission is to take care of you and to take care of your family. To take care of you. And that's certainly a good thing. Like, it's great to have, um, it's great to have people and, and pastors and whatever to, to counsel you and to visit you when you're sick and to do weddings and funerals and to help you when things are broken, to fix them. And those are all good things. The church should do those things. Um, you know, I just personally, it's been really great and gratifying for the way you guys have all loved on my family and cared about my dad and my mom as they've been going through this stuff. Like, that's good. I'm not denigrating that. But that's not why the church was created. That's, in fact, if you look in scriptures, you see that love is really important. 
right? But it's, it's tied often to this fact, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, is that you love one another, right? This is how the mission goes forward, is the fact that people look at you guys and say, wow, there's something, there's something there, that's legit, I want to be a part of that, right? The love is not an end to itself, that gets ingrown and disgusting. It's supposed to be propelling us outward. Sometimes we have the mission that the church exists to give you a meaningful Sunday morning experience. And that's portrayed in our language. We say, I go to church. Where do you go to church? What do we mean? Where is the physical location where you spend an hour on Sunday morning? Okay, that's the mission of the church, right? To provide this experience of, of you know, good music and, and, and encouragement through the word and good, you know, all this stuff that we kind of say is church. And there's value to that, of course. But hopefully it's value that is equipping us for mission, not just becoming an end in itself. The church doesn't exist solely to provide a Sunday morning worship experience. There's plenty. I'll give you one more. This is the saddest one. Sometimes the mission of the church becomes simply to continue to exist. How sad. Where the preservation of the institution is the most important thing. And so all the decisions are made, all the priorities become, how do we keep this thing running? How do we get people here? How do we keep people here? How do we get them to give? How do we, you know, it's not about reaching people for Jesus. It's about getting enough people to preserve an institution. But Jesus did not create the church for survival. He didn't create the church so that you could have a building, that you keep the lights on for 50 years. He created the church to reach the lost. And if a church is not doing that, it should not exist. So those are a couple examples. We all have other ones. I'm sure there's plenty more. But we come to church with our expectations of what our missions are for the church. This is what the church should be doing. This is what the church should be doing. And there's plenty of things that we as followers of Jesus can and should be doing. But if I'm reading scripture right, we don't get to pick what is the mission of the church. God has already told us. The mission of the church is the mission of God. He's been working from the beginning of time to redeem humanity through Jesus. And then he called us and empowered us and equipped us and sent us out to move that mission forward. So, if that's true, I think Jen was right in saying that uh, pastors preach acts because they want to change things. Now, I, I really, honestly, I don't know. I don't know that there's a magic bullet to say, here's what needs to change. But, but I, I think that we do need to change things. Um, and you can give me some feedback on this later if you want. But, like, I think if a neutral third-party observer came and hung out with us for a while and participated in all the things that we're doing, and then you ask them, like, what is the mission of this organization? What is the beating heart of these people? I don't think that it would be Acts 1-8. Taking the gospel to the people around us and farther out. And I, I, don't, I don't think. I think there are some good things. I'm not trying to bash us here. I think that we've got some of those secondary missions. We're doing a good job with some of those things. But I don't, I don't think they would say that this is a church that's all about the mission of God to take the good news of Jesus to the lost. And so I think that we will need to change some stuff if we want to try to 
give God the steak that he's ordered and not the spaghetti that we've made. So all that I'm asking for right now from you guys is just a heart-level commitment to say we're probably going to have to make changes. Like if that's not, if, if the mission of God is not the central mission, I mean, yeah, it's on our bulletin, but is it in our hearts? <laughs> right? If we're going to change some stuff, here's what, I, what I'm asking of you. Can we agree to only get upset about changes if they make it harder to fulfill God's mission? Okay, so every change is going to make it hard. So that it's going to affect other missions. It might make it harder for you to fulfill your personal mission, for the church to fulfill your personal desires for it. But, but can we agree that, that as we try to make changes, we will only get upset if the changes that we're making make it harder for us to fulfill God's mission? Because that's the only one that matters. So let's just put it all on the table. No sacred cows, no untouchable traditions. It's not our church anyway. It's just God's. And he made it for mission. So let's do everything we can to give him the stake that he asked for. Right? Let's pray. I'll pray for that. It's gonna, I mean, you, you pray through that too. You've got to process this. But let's, let's pray. I want to pray for us um, as a local church. You brought us together. You've taken us through various things. You know, you've knit us together as a community. But we don't want to lose sight of the goal. And I feel like you're showing me that again with added clarity that you have created us to be on mission, to be on your mission of redeeming the world through Jesus. Um, so this is very high level. I don't have specifics, um, but I would pray for us as a people that you would at least do that work in our hearts, that we would say, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to do the thing for which you have made us. And I believe with all my heart that when we start to do the things that you've made us to do, we will experience life and joy that we had never, never known. Um, you know, well, that the lawnmower was made to get out of the garage, not just collect dust and break down. So Father, help us. Help us to see where you're leading us to follow and to be faithful. Lord, we believe in your spirit. Would you send us, send us fresh power to do this work? In Jesus' name, amen.